Good morning. It's good to uh, have you all here again today. Lovely to see so many faces out again. Um, uh, before I get into the sermon today, I just want to have a, a quick, um, I guess, you know, it's an important week in our nation this week. Um, it's very important and worthy of taking a few moments to pray over this upcoming election. Now, I'm not going to make any political statements, but maybe give us a bit of information. Um, but I want to encourage each one of us to, um, to research the candidates and parties' policies before we cast our vote and to pray over where our vote goes. And I'd love for us to vote for the candidates that best represent our Christian values and biblical beliefs. While we still have that opportunity, I think we should make the best use of it. Now, most of you would have seen in your flyer, in your mail this week, a flyer from the Australian Christian Lobby highlighting the voting record of our current MP who voted against protecting people from religious discrimination and voted to remove laws that protect the values of faith-based schools. Now, it's concerning to me that our current MP is one of the sixth most anti-Christian MPs by voting record in this parliament. Now, we don't have any Christians who have identified themselves as Christians um, for election in our seat here in Indi, but we can cast our vote to candidates from parties who best represent our Christian values and biblical beliefs. You know, one resource I found helpful at a glance on party policies is actually from the Australian Christian Values Institute and they put out this checklist. If you've been anywhere online, you may have popped up and seen it. Um, but it lists 19 Christian values and gives a rating on each party as to how they do in each of those 19 values that they list. The more green boxes and ticks, the closer the party policies align with Christian values in those 19 areas. It's not exhaustive, but I'd encourage you though, do your own research before you cast your vote and pray for the election this Saturday. Whatever the result, it doesn't change the fact that Jesus is still on the throne and sovereign over all. And the church will continue to grow regardless because that was promised by Christ. But wouldn't it also be nice to have a parliament made up of representatives who more closely represent more of our Christian values than not? Who could help architect a culture in our nation that fears the Lord and seeks his counsel and wisdom? The sad but hopeful reality exists that the stronger the persecution against Christian beco Christians becomes, the more the church flourishes. So, in one sense, it doesn't matter if we have more anti-Christian MPs in Parliament because the church will flourish. But wouldn't it be better to have a country whose leaders honour the Lord like David, who seek God's wisdom like Solomon? How amazing would that be? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bring the upcoming federal election before you Lord, we are concerned at the state of our world as we emerge from this pandemic that has been so dominating for the last two years. And with this election, we pray that the candidates elected to the House of Representatives and the Senate would favour your wisdom over the folly of man. We pray that the next parliament would fear you and work tirelessly to accomplish your plans and purposes for our nation. For our local seat here in Indi, we pray 
that a candidate might be elected who more closely represents our Christian values and biblical beliefs rather than working against them. Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign over all and we pray that your will be done. Amen. You know, today's message providentially is actually about a nation in conflict. Uh, and elections, they bring out conflict between tribalism and all that sort of stuff that happens in our world, doesn't it? It's like footy teams. You know, who here barracks for Collingwood? There's a few of you and everyone hates you, but that's only because you barrack for Collingwood. Like, it's tribalism. We're, we're used to that as people in Australia, right? Um, but the nation of Israel was a kingdom in, uh, in, in, in conflict. A few years ago, I watched a series um, that was all about two families in conflict. Has anybody ever heard of the Hatfields and McCoys? If you have, raise your hand. Right? It's probably some of our older generations who are aware of the Hatfields and McCoys because the Hatfields and McCoys are famous for being two families who were just in sheer and utter conflict. And, and they feuded something fierce. And they feuded something fierce from 1863 to 1901, a period of 38 years. Yet there's people in Australia who have heard about them and know that the Hatfields and McCoys represent and stand for two families in conflict, feuding for generations. Do you know what started the families feuding? Well, the first recorded incident came in 1863 when Asa McCoy was returning from fighting in the Civil War, that's how old this is, and was murdered. Not nice. And one of the Hatfields was blamed for it, although it was later discovered that he was at home, sick at the time, and could not have done it. The second recorded incident of violence between the families took place 13 years later after a dispute over the ownership of a hog. That's right, all over a pig. Yeah, that's right. I understand it was bacon. Yeah, that's, okay, fair enough. Um, as I said, that, but though, the, the ferocity of the dispute between these two families, whose properties also straddled a state line as well, became so legendary that I watched a TV series about it a couple of years ago, and that series was made to retell that story and that conflict. Today, as we open chapter 14 of the story, this chapter could easily be entitled The Hatfields and McCoys of the Old Testament. In, it, uh, is, in this chapter, the nation of Israel is divided. And I want to tell you how that happened. So I want to introduce, uh, read first of all, an introduction to chapter 14 from the story. This is sort of the, the, the book that we sort of base the series on. Um, it's basically the Bible sectioned into 31 chapters and told chronologically. It takes scripture from all over and places them chronologically, but it's not the whole entirety of the scriptures. They do select bits. But this is the introduction um, to chapter 14 and uh, a kingdom torn in two. It says, through the prophet Ahijah, God told a rising young star in Solomon's administration by the name of Jeroboam that he would be the future king. God would give Jeroboam all but one of the tribes of Israel. After possibly making a preemptive bid for the throne, 
Jeroboam learned to wait on God's timing. Solomon was not ready to relinquish the throne and tried to kill Jeroboam to keep him from becoming king. Jeroboam fled to Egypt and waited there for an opportunity to make his next move. After Solomon died, his own tribe of Judah automatically accepted his son Rehoboam as the next king. But much of the population, especially from the other tribes, had grown to resent Solomon's heavy taxation and constricted labour for his grand projects. As representatives from all of Israel gathered to make Rehoboam king, they let their complaints be known. Gives a bit of background. So Rehoboam, sorry, so Jeroboam hears that they made Rehoboam king. And so he heads from Egypt to Israel for the inauguration and to see if Rehoboam might be less harsh than his father, King Solomon. Rehoboam, in answering the challenge of Jeroboam, first goes to the elders who served his dad, older, experienced guys, and he gets their opinion. And they advise wisely. 1 Kings 12 verse 7, If you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favourable answer, they will always be your servant. Rehoboam, however rejects their advice and then goes to some of the young men, the lads that he grew up with and asks them. And they say, the young men who'd grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. It's at this point that the nation of Israel divides. And it's over something much greater than the ownership of a hog. Of the 12 tribes of Israel, only those living in the towns of Judah stay with Rehoboam. The rest rally behind Jeroboam and make him their king. Ten of the twelve tribes form the nation of Israel to the north. The tribe of Simeon is melded into the tribe of Judah and they form the nation of Judah to the south. This division happened in 930 BC and it remains that way throughout the rest of the Old Testament, 530 years. Division is a nasty place to live. It churns our stomachs. It boils our blood. It robs us of joy. It ruins weddings. It undermines a church's witness in a city. It dashes hopes and dreams. It crushes the spirits of innocent children. I'm reminded here of the words of Jesus. A house divided against itself cannot stand. In the teaching of the Bible, a house can be a family, an individual, a church, a business, or in this case, an entire nation. There are so many outside forces that threaten our unity and stability, but they can be overcome with unity on the inside. But once a house on the inside turns against itself, it's just a matter of time before the house crumbles. So what can we do about avoiding division in our house? 
in our homes, in our families, in our church, in our community. There's a host of principles to promote unity and hold divisions at bay, but I want to focus our attention on four things, four principles that we can learn from Israel. The first of those is be careful who you listen to. It's pretty easy to see the rookie mistake that Rehoboam made, right? He rejected the advice of elders, experienced wise elders who'd sat for many years under the wisdom of Solomon, the wisest person to ever walk the earth other than Jesus. They were there in his council. They were people that Solomon looked to, the wisest man looked to for counsel and Instead of embracing them, what does he do? He instead chooses to embrace the advice of the lads that he grew up with. If all you do is listen to people your own age, you're not taking advantage of people to experience situations before you. You know, the best way to learn, from, to learn a lesson in life is to learn from somebody else's mistakes and then not make them yourself. You know, people have been there and done most of our things that we're trying to do before. So why not seek wisdom and godly counsel? But uh, Rehoboam didn't do that. And there's more. These are the guys that grew up with him. Yet he is now the king. What is the likelihood that his mates are going to tell the king bad news or tough things that he needs to hear? The cost is too high for them. And I find it a general rule to be true for all of us. Our friends are generally disposed to tell us what we want to hear. Our friends want to please us. And they don't want to drive a wedge in relationships. And so we've got to be aware of this. But listen to Proverbs 27.6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses you know we all need to have friends around us that will tell us the truth if you are wise you will beg them to tell you something that will be hard for you to hear at the time it will feel like a wound but in the end it will save you and preserve the bonds of unity in your house If you're the friend who is approached to give counsel to another friend or about a relationship conflict with someone, another friend, a spouse, a co-worker, a neighbour, I've got two pieces of advice. First of all, ask for permission right up front to tell them what they don't necessarily want to hear. And second of all, don't ever give hard counsel without listening to the other side of the story. We can't help ourselves in how we spin the story we will always retell something making ourselves look a little bit better than what it probably is the truth. If only one person controls a narrative, you can almost bet that you're going to give bad advice. Seek permission to hear the other side. And that sort of leads us to my second point, which is division is seldom one-sided. Own your part. At first, at first it appears Rehoboam is, one, is the one completely in the wrong. But when you get the whole story, you see that Jeroboam also played a part. First, before Rehoboam is even in the story, Jeroboam is told by a prophet that he would be king. 
He takes matters in his own hands and makes a move to, to take the whole kingdom from Solomon, Rehoboam's dad. That attempt failed because it was outside the timing of God and it caused him to flee to Egypt. See, Jeroboam was ambitious. He wanted that position. And after he gets what he wants, we learn that to keep the ten tribes from going back to Jerusalem and to worship God and offer sacrifices, he made two golden calves and set them up for people to worship and offer sacrifices to. If you recall the story of Moses, how did that work out for the nation of Israel last time? Not, not very well. Scripture says, this thing became a sin. God sends a prophet to Jeroboam to confront him. And the result is this. Even after this, Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. We see a few pages later that this led to his ultimate downfall. You know, being in ministry for over a decade and being involved in churches my whole life, um, I've only ever seen a handful of occasions where the division was one-sided. You know, divisions are seldom 50-50, equal, you know, a, a blame, I guess you could say. But, but nonetheless, both parties contribute a significant part in the division. Walking with friends going through divorce or counselling couples who are struggling in their marriage, it's rare to find complete one-sided blame. Even in the case of unfaithfulness and adultery, there is usually a long history that led to that moment. You can't control the other person, but you can own your part. And I find this posture, this posture of humility, creates the best environment for healing. And not just in marriages. Owning your own part in conflict of any kind is really important. We can all simply blame everyone else. That's really easy. Blame everybody else for all the problems in life. But owning our part, though, is the first step toward restore, restoration and healing. It not only displays humility, but it builds trust. You know, personally, I know I have many flaws. Just ask Kelly. Actually, no, don't. She might be too honest. And I know that I also have blind spots. Those are the bits where we don't even know that we're not doing something right or hurting people and we're, even, we're completely blind to it. Things I'm not even aware that I might do that might cause division or you know, conflict. Those are the sort of things that are always completely unintended but potentially harmful nonetheless. But you know, that awareness, self-awareness that, you know, I know I have flaws and I know I have blind spots, that wasn't always the case. In the Im immaturity of my 20s, I thought I had it all together pretty well. And I was confident in my abilities and my gifting and I used to be hyper-defensive when people would criticise me. How on earth could they criticise me? I would say. And I would see everything as a personal attack. A great friend and mentor of mine highlighted that flaw in my personality. He, he highlighted the fact that I have flaws. That was new to me in my 20s. What? I have flaws? Really? And at that time, I had some pretty big blind spots as well. 
And I wasn't even aware. Had no idea. Was not conscious of that at all. Some people did mistake my confidence for arrogance and that didn't help at all. And it was causing conflict though, my approach to life in my working relationships and in my friendships and a loving Christian friend and mentor walked me through my failures. That really sucked. It was not pleasant at all. But I now own my flaws. Like, I know I am flawed. And as much as I'm aware of them and as best as I know how, I own my part. Now, you know, I'm not perfect. But I own my part. And that is what we all need to do. Own our part if we want to take steps towards restoration and healing. Um, just before I move on to the next point, you know when a new pastor starts at a church, there's always this thing that people call the, the honeymoon period, right? It's where sort of, I don't know, six months, 12 months, 18 months, sometimes it can even last as long as two years, but it's where the pastor can do no wrong, right? Everyone loves them. They're really appreciative that someone has arrived and has taken up this role, and, and so there's that, that honeymoon period. Now, I've been here for three years now, and you now know a lot of my flaws. You now know areas of my strengths and areas of my weaknesses. The honeymoon is over, right? And so this is sort of real. Um, and through those last three years, there's probably moments where I've offended you. Never intentionally, but it's probably something I've done. And it's because I'm a flawed human being just like you. And so in those moments, if I've ever offended you, first of all, let me apologise. Unreservedly, let me apologise. Um, it's never been my intention. And I hope also in those three years, you've learnt to know that my heart is for you and for God's church. And hopefully that sort of understanding and that relationship that we have as me, as your pastor and and to, as, you, as, as the people I love and care for and, and called a shepherd, hopefully that you know that my heart is for you and for God's church. But I am flawed. I will make mistakes. I will offend you. But it's not my heart to do that on purpose or intentionally. I own my flaws. Do we all own our flaws? Do we all own our part in conflict? Or do we sail through like I did in my 20s, thinking that I'm perfect? I'm eating a bit. I've got this all sorted out. Or do we actually take that next step in maturity and go, actually, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to own that. Because owning it is the first step towards restoration and healing. And division, it has a generational effect. We certainly saw this for the Hatfields and McCoys. And likewise, we see this squabble between Rehoboam and Jeroboam rippling through their family for generations. Listen to these passages. 1 Kings 14 verse 30. There was continual warfare between Rehoboam and Jeroboam. 1 Kings 15:6. There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime. 1 Kings 15:16. 16. 
there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, throughout their reigns. The division of the kingdom of Israel took place in 930 BC and continued to be a contentious relationship from that day on. Do you remember during Jesus' ministry, he encountered the Samaritan woman at the well? Well, Jesus was going from Jerusalem to Galilee. And to get there, you can go through Samaria, which is where Jesus encountered the woman at the well. The Samaritans are the remnant of Jews still living there from the northern kingdom established under Jeroboam. The Jews from the south, from Rehoboam's kingdom of Judah, despised the Samaritans so much, they would go out of their way and walk around Samaria to avoid any contact with them. Division lasted generations. Why do you think they were, the Samaritans were so hated by the Jews? goes back to Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Division has a generational effect. But Jesus is a reconciler and he goes right through Samaria and talks with the woman at the world for the purpose of reconciliation. Division can ruin families for generations like the Hatfields and McCoys. When you decide to destroy a relationship, remember it will usually run through generations. In Romans 12, 18, Paul writes, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that leads me to my last point. Rehoboam and Jeroboam aren't the ones who struck the first match of division. It was actually Rehoboam's dad, King Solomon. Last week in chapter 13, we saw how King Solomon was doing great. It was a time of peace for the children of Israel. In response to Solomon's request, he's filled with God's wisdom and is reaping the benefits galore. But little by little, he stops applying it to his life and kingdom. There's a great story that we've all probably heard about frogs and it goes like this. A frog that is dropped into a pot of boiling water will immediately jump out. But if you place him in a pot of lukewarm water and slowly turn up the heat underneath, you can cook him to death. By the time he becomes aware of what's happening, his body can't respond. Now that's actually not true. Frogs jump out. It's actually false. Um, but what is true is that that's our experience. That's, what tr that's why that story about frogs in a boiling pot of water has made the circles because we feel it true right down deep. Let me tell you the lukewarm pot of water that Solomon jumped into. He married many foreign women to establish political alliances with the surrounding nations. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which are like second-class wives or legalised mistresses that he could call on at any time. These foreign wives worshipped other gods and talked Solomon into building temples so they could worship their gods. What does the first commandment say? You shall have no other gods before me. King Solomon, sorry, God visits Solomon one day and gives him this message. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. 
Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Here is the most important principle of this lesson. If you are threatened with a feud, getting your focus off God is the root cause. A family, a church, a nation that stays close to God puts the biggest wall of protection around themselves to preserve unity. The single greatest thing I can do to preserve the unity of the church as your pastor is to walk closely and humbly before God. The single greatest thing I can do as a husband is to walk closely with and humbly before God. The single greatest thing I can do as a dad is to walk closely with and humbly before God. The same is true for you. On June 14th, 2003, Bo and Ron McCoy partnered with Rio Hatfield to declare an official truce between the families, 140 years after the first fight broke out. The document was signed by 60 descendants from both sides of the family and Governor Paul Patton of Kentucky and Governor Bob uh, Wise of West Virginia signed the proclamation and they declared that June 14 was Hatfield and McCoy Reconciliation Day. Rio Hatfield said he wanted to show that if these two families could reach an accord Others could also. Ron McCoy said that up to then the Hatfields and McCoys had represented feuding and fighting, but by signing this, hopefully people would realise that that's not the final chapter. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But the opposite is also true. A house united can withstand anything. This is God's prayer for you, to be united. Let me pray. Father Jesus, you prayed that we would be one, even as you and he are one. You told us a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one. Paul challenged us that we are one body, and we need to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is our desire, but we need your help. Our flesh is at war with our mind and our spirit to tear us apart. The devil is prowling around our homes trying to devour us and has gotten some of us. So we draw close to you in this moment as our only hope. Restore what the locusts have eaten Draw us toward each other. May we be quick to ask for forgiveness and to receive it. May we display the humility of Christ. 
You want to write a good story for our lives that is filled with unity, love, peace and joy. We join you today in making that story a reality in our life. We pray this for the sake of Jesus and the witness of his name and the hope of the gospel. We also pray for our nation this week. We pray that our nation would emerge a more unified nation, not more divided. We pray that your will be done. We pray that each member of parliament elected would walk closely with and humbly before God as we pray each of us would also walk closely with and humbly before God. Amen. Well, why don't you uh, stand with me as we conclude our service by singing about praising Jesus. Let's stand and sing.